Hello and welcome to a rapid response bunker daily about the second and final presidential debate of the 2020 election campaign. I'm Dorian Linsky. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Thomas Gift, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the Centre on US Politics at UCL. Hi, Thomas. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Dorian. It's great to be here. Did you stay up late for the debate or get up early? I, I realised there was it was it was lose lose. I got up early. I'm getting too old to stay up late at this point, so I was able to watch it this morning before this podcast. Yeah, it it goes better with with coffee than with with alcohol. I think exactly. <laughs> um, bef- um, before we start, I mean, what did both candidates need? Uh, to get out of this debate, you know, get going into it, and, and therefore, I suppose, establish a metric of success? Well, I think that for Joe Biden, he obviously has a lead, and not just a lead, a fairly comfortable lead, approximately eight to 10 percentage points in the national polls. And so I think his strategy going in was essentially to play it safe, not make any gaffes, not take any risks, and just deliver a solid performance. His objective going in was really to ensure that he came out with the same kind of front-runner status in which he came into last night's debate. For Donald Trump, I think it was a different scenario. He's obviously trailing. I think he needed a, a win or at least to gain some momentum heading into the final week and a half or so in the run-up to November 3rd. Um, so I think he felt that this was essentially his last opportunity to speak in real time to a live national audience. And these debates in the U.S. do garner considerable attention. The first debate, for example, got around 73 million views. Uh, So he viewed this as kind of his last pitch, his final plea to speak to the country as a whole. And he needed to to flip the script and change the the setup here in this election. Well, it seems to me that look at some of the the kind of the media coverage in the states that if he's not actively feral, then he is uh, calm and restrained. Is uh, is is Trump sort of graded on a curve that really the first one was such a, a, a an ugly sight that that anything it, it was an improvement for him. I think that's right. And in fact, I think that's the case almost for all candidates. They're kind of graded relative to a certain metric, a certain benchmark. Um, So, for example, in the first debate, Donald Trump, I think, really set the bar low for his opponent, Joe Biden. And whenever Joe Biden kind of cleared that bar and then some, everyone said, well, he won by a large margin. This debate, too, you have to look at it relative to what Trump's expectations were, and particularly after the first debate, which I think most experts agree was fairly cataclysmic for him. He did better tonight, right? Um, And some of that may have just been the format. He was subjected to this mute button, which maybe constrained some of his worst impulses or that desire to constantly interrupt, to interject to go negative. He seemed a little bit more calm, a little bit more stable in last night's debate. And I think he came off better uh, to voters. Uh, why did this work so much better than the first one? Was it, was it you know, just the, just the mute button? Was Did the moderator, Kristen Welker, just have a better handle on things? I think it's a combination of factors, and I also think it's due to the to the fact that we did have the first debate, and so everyone kind of knew what was coming. Chris Wallace, who moderated debate one, said that essentially he wasn't anticipating that level of kind of back and forth interruption, 
uh, constant bickering between the two candidates. So when you go into the second debate, you kind of have this expectation, all right, this could happen again. As a result, the debate organizers did change the format by introducing this mute button. And that gave both candidates at least some opportunity to spend you know, a certain amount of time explaining their position on issues. And I think that that was really helpful. They did open it up then to more of a free-flowing debate. So there was a little bit of back and forth. But you know, it, it was better for viewers, I think, because you could really get a, a sense of where both candidates stood on the issues. And what sense did you get from Trump? What did you get about the substance of policies of what he's offering in the second term? Well, I have to say, I think that one thing that Donald Trump really hasn't done well overall is articulate what his policies would be in a second term. One of the things that Donald Trump did extremely well in 2016 was have quippy slogans, you know, build the wall or America first. All that resonated with a fraction, at least of the GOP base. But up until last night, it's been really hard to figure out policy-wise what exactly another four years of his leadership would bring. And not just that, what issues, immigration, law and order, trade, et cetera, he'd prioritize. Essentially, if he had another first 100 days, so to speak, what would he put on the table? I think up until this point, he really hasn't provided a lucid answer to that question that has both energized disaffected Republicans and also had moderate appeal. Instead, his campaign has struck me as fairly reactive, emphasizing the fact that he's not Joe Biden. And even there, his argument has been somewhat irreconcilable, I would argue, because on some day, Biden is the secret agent of the far left bent on upending American capitalism, introducing massive discretionary spending, undercutting traditional American values. And on other days, Joe Biden is Washington establishment, sluggish, eager to bring things back to a former era. Um, the fact that Trump hasn't been able to settle on one line of attack is kind of reflective of this scattered campaign. I think last night's debate, he did go into a little bit more substance in terms of the policy. You know, a lot of the conversation, especially at the outset, was around the co coronavirus. And obviously, both candidates gave very differing pictures of what that looks like. But, you know, even though both candidates had more of an opportunity to distinguish themselves in terms of policy, I'm not sure that was the place where Donald Trump necessarily excelled. Um, so he ha still has some work to do, I think, in the next week and a half going up to the election. Well, because, I mean, quite early on, you know, that was the first topic, uh, his COVID response. Um, and he was promising a vaccine within weeks, which he then sort of dialed back and then promised it's going away. And it, it, it just seemed to... Um, I mean, I know there's been so much discussion over, well, does it matter when Trump lies? You know, does it matter with, I suppose, his, his base? But I mean, it, obviously, he's not trying, he's trying to reach beyond his base. If when, he, when Trump goes, oh, there's a vaccine, it's coming. Does, does that have any credibility? Well, credibility, probably not. <laughs> but that's not something that Donald Trump has really sought to cultivate over the last four years. You know, I guess I would say that I'm not sure if Donald Trump's goal always is to convince swing voters to come to his side. You know, one thing that Donald Trump has done, which has defined his presidency and distinguished himself from previous administrations, is that he really has not tried to extend his circle of support beyond 40 to 45 percent of the American population, basically his 
loyal base. And I have to say, at this stage in the election, it might make sense to not focus on swing voters. And the reason for that is just because there are so few swing voters left. The Washington Post did a report a couple of days ago, and depending on how you measure it, it seems like about 2 to 8% of the American population hasn't decided yet. That's roughly half the number of voters compared to in 2016 who hadn't uh, decided. So as a result, I think what Donald Trump's strategy is, is to just ensure that his base shows up on election day. And one thing that we have seen is that there's an enthusiasm gap between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. That is, Joe Biden's polling better nationally. But if you ask people how strongly you feel about the candidate, Donald Trump has more enthusiasm among his base. And so if it comes to election day and your kid's sick or the weather's bad and uh, you're just not feeling like going out to vote, Donald Trump voters are going to come out to vote. That's for sure. Um, I think with Joe Biden, I still think that there's some, some motivation there. There's some enthusiasm, but it's not to the order of Donald Trump's base. So I think that's what Trump's strategy is. It's kind of been his strategy since the outset. It certainly has downsides. But right now, with a week and a half left, if you haven't decided, I'm not sure if you how, how closely you've really been watching uh, this individual because he's so polarizing. And so Trump's strategy, I think, with coronavirus, anything else is just to ensure that he doesn't lose his base, that they come out, that they are 100% mobilized. It didn't really strike me until about halfway through the debate. Um, my wife came in and watched a bit with me um, and that everything that Biden said sort of made sense to somebody that wasn't following the contest uh, super closely. But Trump would talk about, uh, you know, he's talking about the Hunter Biden emails like explaining really what they were or referring to uh, AOC plus three, which my wife was like, I have no idea what this means. Um, so th- it does seem almost like there's this kind of like that he speaks a kind of the language of the Fox News bubble of the base that he he doesn't seem to be. And, and then the final inauguration, you know, the final question was, what would you say in an inauguration speech you know, next January? And he was still talking about the election. And it's it just just Trump to sort of have an inability to talk. It's not just he's focusing on his base, but he does not know how to talk to anyone else. Well, I think that's. Probably true. I think that's an accurate description. He's just become so acculturated to speaking at these uh, MAGA rallies, Fox News viewers, and his base that he just doesn't have the the language, the rhetoric, the diction to be able to communicate beyond in those forty to forty five percent of Americans. You know that's been true since the very outset. It's still true now. It's one reason I think why. Donald Trump's support has a floor, but I also think that it's one reason why his support has a ceiling. We haven't seen much movement on his approval numbers. Republicans are very much with him, or at least a certain contingent of Republicans are very much with him. Doesn't do particularly well with many moderate voters, particularly women. And Democrats are, of course, dead set against him. So that's one reason why this election, despite the fact that there's been so much controversy around it, so much attention riveted on it, has actually been kind of boring on some level. Because if you look back several months, the polls have remained fairly steady. Um, And Joe Biden's lead has 
narrowed and widened here and there, but mostly it stayed over five percentage points and in many cases has been approaching, if not exceeding, double digits. And that's because I think Donald Trump is just speaking to a certain component of voters. They support him. Others don't. And so it's hard to get much much movement here um, absent some external external shock. I mean, Biden, the reason I think he was in trouble in the primaries uh, for a while was people were worried about his sort of age, um, his occasional kind of stumbles when he's speaking, which is obviously partly to do with his um, stutter, but also a feeling that, you know, he just wasn't very inspiring. He talked about this enthusiasm gap. and, And I remember discussions at the beginning of the year, just like, well, Biden is not the guy. Obviously, he, he did win. He had that comeback. He's become the, the, the candidate. And he sort of streets ahead. But how do you assess him as a candidate? Do you think he is, do you think he sort of has these underrated strengths? Or is he just the guy who isn't Trump? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I think his primary strength is the fact that he has very low unfavorabilities. Right. So there are very few Americans who have strong dislike of Joe Biden, even some Trump supporters and a lot of moderates. It's very rare to find Americans who have a strong antipathy toward Biden as a person. They may disagree with it on policy and issues. And of course, there's about half the American population who's not going to vote for him. But kind of this classic question that's often asked in polls in the United States, do you want to have a beer with this person? Joe Biden does pretty well on that because he seems like a likable person. You know, he has a, a, a nice family. You know, his, his, his story is in many ways very inspiring. And so the fact that he doesn't turn off a huge swath of voters is an important quality. That contrasts fairly sharply with Hillary Clinton in 2016. And so you can debate why that's the case, but the numbers were pretty clear that there was a significant portion of Americans that just had very strong dislike of Hillary Clinton. I think that's not the case with Joe Biden. Um, So as a candidate, that general likability as a person is helpful. I think also the campaign that he's run has been smart for the moment. I mean, he's essentially run the campaign that experts expected him to run. He's had some gaffes. He's had some moments that I'm sure he'd like a mulligan on. But by and large, it was a pretty conventional campaign in the sense that he took a safe approach. He avoided these unnecessary risks, and he didn't feel a need to throw any Hail Mary passes. That's true from everything from who Biden chose as VP, Kamala Harris, to the staff he's built around him, to the types of themes that he's emphasized on the campaign trail. He's mostly tried to keep the focus on Trump, and he's done that pretty successfully, making this election a referendum on his four years in office. And I think all of that makes sense. So Biden comes in with relatively high favorabilities or at least low unfavorabilities. And he's run a, a, a pretty vanilla campaign, not not to say that in a pejorative sense. I think it made sense because he, he came out as the, the clear front runner and he's been able to maintain that gap, which is a credit to him. Uh, did you get a clear, clearer sense of what his first hundred days might be like when maybe, I, I mean, I don't know how much when you're talking about this pressure from different flanks of the party, I'm not sure whether that would that would take place over the longer term and that, that when you're talking about your first 100 days, you're kind of, it's the stuff that you've already worked out that you're going to do. Did you have a clear sense of what to expect from a, a Biden administration, at least in the 
in the initial period? Personally, I, I don't. Um, and this has been a criticism of him dating back to the primaries. You know, there was a particular contrast between Elizabeth Warren, who uh, was one of the progressive uh, Democratic candidates at the time, who her reputation was having a plan for everything. So everything was kind of detailed, laid out. This is exactly what I'm going to do from day one. Of course, none of that would actually happen because you, you run into the problems of, of Congress and compromise and all the political factions in Washington that you have to navigate. But at least there was kind of a an agenda, a blueprint for this is where we want negotiations to start. I think that you know Biden has been criticized for being fairly ambiguous on policy. The default assumption is that most of the prescriptions that he would be offering would default to something that looked like the agenda in the Obama administration. I think that that's a reasonable assumption. So if we think about the types of issues that Obama wanted to push but wasn't able to push, especially after he got ACA through, that's probably what we can expect from a first 100 days uh, with Biden. But still, I do think that there are lots of question marks. He's to a large extent avoided having to go extremely specific simply because his whole message has been in opposition to Donald Trump. Just let Donald Trump out there, self-implode. His numbers are self-destructing anyway. And so why go go specific in the policy? You see why he does this. And, I, and from a political standpoint, it's hard to criticize. But on day one, I'm not entirely sure. Not just what policies he would necessarily want to push through, but how he would prioritize in a certain order. Because usually what you have is, you know, a president gets one legislative, major legislative accomplishment. With Obama, it was ACA, obviously, with George W. Bush, for example, it was no child left behind in education. You get that one policy, it's a landmark achievement, and then you expend a lot of your political capital. But on questions like what Biden is going to do with China in terms of the trade war or how aggressively he's going to push uh, legislation on climate change, what he thinks the corporate tax rate should be specifically. All of those are, are fairly unclear, at least to me. Um, and finally, obviously, we're, you know, we're a special podcast about this debate, this huge analysis of, of debate. But it's, it, this isn't, doesn't look likely to make a big difference. And in fact, sort of historically... You know, mo- more often than not, debates don't actually kind of move the direction of a race. Are they, do you think they are kind of overrated that we just think, oh, something could happen literally in the room while we're watching that changes everything? Uh, but actually, that, 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 that doesn't usually happen. Exactly. I mean, you can think about these very famous moments in debates that are still talked about today. And when you go through the highlight reel, you remember this quip or that quip. But I just don't think that they do fundamentally change the dynamics of the race. I mean, these candidates are in the living rooms of families basically every single day. Donald Trump is tweeting 50 times a day. We know who Joe Biden is, for example. He's been in the Senate. He's been vice president for decades what else do you need to know? Um, it's hard to think that kind of a 15 second clip that goes viral makes makes a, a gigantic difference. And in some ways, that's that's probably good. And also because you know the the um, 
you know, the debates are kind of artificial in some ways. They, they measure or they evaluate a set of skills that I'm not sure is entirely relevant to governing. I mean, if you're good on your feet, if you are able to get that quip one liner, um, if you can speak really articulately in sound bites, then you do well in debates. But what is governing? Governing is compromise. It's working with Congress. It's pouring over documents for you know hours with your staff. It's making methodical decisions. It's the the cliche quote that campaigns are um, kind of run in poetry, and then governing is is done in prose. I think it very much applies to these debates, which is that they're fun to watch. They get good ratings. Network televisions really enjoy them. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure if we should be making decisions on who to vote for based on kind of the hour and a half or two hours that we're watching the candidates. Thank you. I mean, that's why that makes me think of, of, of one of the most effective lines of thought of Biden's, where he just goes, you know who he is and you know who I am. <laughs> and like you point out, right, at this stage, people know. <laughs> that's absolutely the case. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Thomas Gift. That's a pleasure. I really appreciate the invitation. It's been a great discussion. There'll be more coverage of the US election on the weekly Bunker episodes. Take care and see you soon. No malarkey. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.